Hello, welcome to the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. This is a safe space where mamas can talk openly about their highs and lows of motherhood and to look deeper into who they are as women and their journey into motherhood. We may agree and disagree or cry and laugh, but one thing for sure is we will learn from one another and have a great time. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Mamas Know Best. We got something to say. I have a very special guest, Sarah Bro. Sarah is a writer, brand and marketing consultant, um, as well as a keynote speaker who loves talking about how entrepreneurs and leaders can use storytelling devices to connect with audiences, spark interaction, and ignite their businesses. Sarah, before we get into all that great stuff, though, let's first talk about um, your motherhood journey because you have a very special motherhood journey. So why don't we go into there? You can kind of introduce yourself and then we'll go into the rest of the conversation. I'm Sarah Bro, uh, like you said, and I am a mother of two, but both of my kids were adopted and um, we adopted cross-racially when they were days old, we got them. So we have had quite the journey and yeah, we're, we're at 20. My oldest is at 20 and my son is 16. Wow. Okay. Wait, there's a lot. So wait, so you've been an adopted mom now for over 20 years. So I'm thinking you had little ones. So no, this has been a process that's been for for a long time. So why don't you talk? And I don't want to say briefly, because I feel like that's such, I, I admire people who can, me being a mom of saying, wow, to take another child and to love it as your own. And they are your children. How, tell me how that process, what came to be, what made you guys go that, that route? Yeah. So my husband and I got married young. So we were 21 and we had very big ideas of romantic ideas about changing the world together. And part of that was that we wanted to have a really interracial family and to really kind of be a demonstration of how we're all valuable and we're all beautiful. And, you know, look how beautiful our family can be with its diversity. So we actually started the adoption process at the same time we were 25 or 26 and we decided, okay, we're going to start trying to have a baby biologically. And we we're going to start the adoption process and just see what would happen first. And so anyway, we ended up obviously having our Ellie who was adopted first. And then she was so dang hard that we decided that um, we couldn't do a bunch. We just had to stick with two. So <laughs> when you say hard, you mean like the process itself? No, actually the process itself was fairly easy for us, but she was a, a high needs baby and we were totally out of our depth. Um, well, you were also young. You were so young too. But we, were, we were so young and we didn't know anything like all the research now on parenting for adopted kids is really geared at understanding trauma and early developmental trauma. And we just had no idea. And so I feel like Ellie, unfortunately, was the test baby. And we didn't get, uh, we didn't have the skills that we had once our son came along. We've learned a lot over the years and understanding trauma and um, neurodevelopment and how early developmental trauma for any child affects them long term. Yeah, that's how we got into it. And we have learned so much along the way. And, you know, we love our little family. 
That's awesome. And I know you said biracially. So where are your children? Where are they originally from? Are they from the United States? Are they? Yeah, they're, they were both domestic births and Ellie, they're both um, black and white. Okay. So yeah. how has that now that that's a good point that you said, I feel like there's something with over the 20 year period, right? I'm, I'm 37. So I would say 20, 25 year period where I, a lot of the moms that I have interviewed, where when we look back of our generation and in between that time, so many things changing, right? Of so many things we now know, whether it is, as you said, on um, the trauma of the adoption, like, yeah, that's such a, 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 when you think about it, it's like, this is a child you're bringing to your home, but what trauma did they get prior to coming into your home? from being yeah. mom's belly and all of that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and just having your own, you know, it's just the whole process of that. And I feel like in this past 20, 25 years is when things, I don't know, are just, and whether it's the internet that has helped with that or YouTube, because there's so many people sharing stories. What have you learned now, gosh, 20 something years in that you would share with anyone who is looking to adopt children? What would you say are some things that, you know, are some high level tips to say, look, if I could not do it again, but, you know, that you wish you would have known and all that other than, of course, like you said, that the trauma and, and looking at the psychological aspect of it. I really think that if, if a family is looking to adopt now, understanding that trauma is paramount and understanding what they need. I, I call adoptive parenting. Um, it's like extreme parenting. It's you love them, of course, as much. And, you know, you see them as extensions of yourself, you know, just like any, you know, biological parent, but it does require some skillful parenting. You know, you, you often get a lot of criticism from the outside because people don't understand what really goes into building a safe trust bond with your child. And that attachment is so important that I say, if I were parenting a biological child, you know, my goals would not be the same. Mm. Um even though my love would be the same, my goals would not. And so I think with a biological child, you're trying to build character. You're, you know, trying to launch them out into the world and go from dependence to independence. Whereas I think for an adoptive uh, parenting strategy would be more of going from independence because they come in not trusting you know, even though the baby doesn't have this cognitive awareness that they've been, you know, separated from yeah. their mother, their birth mother, their brains and their bodies respond in a way that is protecting them from that separation, because that was their life force for nine months. So that separation begins those neural pathways. And that's how our brains are refined is by those experiences. And so I think understanding that your goal is to get them to depend on you and to need you because that's where attachment happens. Wow, that's such a good point that you said that because it's so true of for as me having a biological child. It's like, yes, that security is kind of already there. That's the instinct. That's the instinctual nature. And we're trying to hold on to it as long as we can, knowing that once they get into the world, they're going to have friends. They might not be as influenced by us anymore. So we're trying to hold on to that. Right. Where obviously, yes, your end goal is still to make sure that you're raising resilient, independent children eventually, but it's the reverse in the beginning where you're trying to say, no, hey, you can trust me. You can yeah. be 
safety and you're trying to build that security blanket in the beginning. It's really less about the, you know, hey, this is how the world works. You can't do this and you can do that. It's no, hey, the world is safe and we've got you. And And you have to constantly prove that. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a lifelong journey. But I think understanding that you're going to be parenting longer than maybe some other parents in biological situations and and some not. I mean, we our culture right now is filled with traumatic experiences. So, you know, I'm not saying that that's an exclusive to adoptive parenting. It just is the adoptive parent experience. Yeah, no, that's so poignant to point that out. Um, And thank you for for sharing that story. And I just feel like that's amazing. I feel for anyone to kind of be, parenthood is selfless in itself, right? Um, When you really look at it, you have this extension of yourself, this other human being that you are raising, um, that you have to care for. But there is, I think, a special level of selflessness that comes in when they're not biologically yours. And you have to be just as, or maybe as you stated, even more so that maybe biological parents take for granted because it's almost innate where you have to kind of bring out of yourself the anguish that must be, especially, gosh, when I think about it, you were so young. I'm like, I'm thinking about myself at like 25, 26 to have the responsibility of caring for a child that isn't biologically yours. Right. Wow. That's, that's pretty awesome of you and your husband to even think that at that age, that's, that's pretty awesome. Well, and you know, I really recommend that if your listeners or anyone else is, is thinking of adoption that, you know, one of their goals initially would be to get counseling because oftentimes it's, there's a really high percentage rate of parents who struggle with attachment themselves that are drawn to adoption. And so, you know, I always have a theory that we're all on an attachment continuum. You know, we all kind of trust it at different levels, depending on, you know, our background and our, you know, and our own biology and our trauma history, you know, all of that. But yeah, I would say that people who tend to really struggle more with attachment are drawn to adoption. And so sometimes your attachment issues and a baby's or a child's attachment issues can really butt heads with each other and, and make it even harder. So I would say before you do that, go, go make sure that you're healthy, you know, you have healthy attachments in your life and work on that first before. No, absolutely. Well, like I said, thank you for, thank you for sharing, for sharing your journey in that. And now why don't we go into, so you have your, your two babies and you're obviously going through this journey of parenthood and and you're all of that. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Did you go to school for something else? Did you, were, were you on this level of a career path that you were like, yeah, this isn't for me. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm on the like (laughs) multi-road I had a podcast host recently call me multi-passionate and I thought now that's a great spin on it. Um, But I, yeah, I started off teaching Spanish and English as a second language to international students Mm -hmm. and foreign language education was my major. And so I did, I taught in high school for about five years and um, taught kids from all over the world. And then after having kids, I thought, oh, I can't do the emotional, um, the emotional demands on 
teaching and parenting. That was a little bit beyond my grasp. So I did, well, I started teaching at the college level, which requires so much less emotional engagement. And I was able to do it um, just part-time and, you know, teach one class here, one class there. And so I did that um, for a while. And then after that, I decided I really wanted to go to get my master's in something because I really do love learning. So I decided to get my master's and my husband encouraged me to do something that really would um, excite me and um, light my fire and not just be like a a career boost, you know, like um, to teach at the next level or something, but just to do something that really excited me. And so I decided to uh, study writing, creative writing. So from there, I went into using my creative writing to apply it to marketing for small businesses. I did editing, book editing, story consultation, and um, and then that led into brand development and, and brand storytelling. That's awesome. Well, shout out to the husbands that are supportive. All the moms, Um, that I've interviewed, if there's a lot that they have in common is like the village of the supports. And obviously the number one being if, unless you are a single mom, um, your partner, and it's like, shout out to the husbands, because that's awesome. Especially, you know, because the generation of where the moms kind of stayed at home. So to have a partner that's like, no, go ahead, find something that you're passionate about, do something you love. That's awesome. Yeah. He's been very supportive with that. That's awesome. Okay. So now you're doing that. And then what, so how does that lead to basically I see here, cause I follow you on Instagram, or I should say, I looked up your account. What now do you do specifically as far as brand development? Is it for small businesses? Is it particularly for moms? Tell me a little bit about what um, Bro Creative is all about. Yeah. I, um, my niche isn't who I serve, but what I offer. Okay. And- so it's more um, storytelling, uh, brand storytelling. And so I do this, I offer this two day or two hour, depends on whatever your needs are, storytelling session where we build your brand story. And from there, you have this storybook that ends up being your guide for your any kind of marketing messaging you have from there. So I can take that and turn it into a wireframe for what you need to put on your website because, you know, words sell. And I think oftentimes, you know, you understand your company so well and you love what you offer, but you're not communicating it in a way that makes it easy or simple for your audience to consume it. And I think it goes to say, if you don't know what your story is, how can you sell it or pitch it to somebody else? Exactly, exactly. And um, the framework I use really positions the customer as the hero of the story, not your business and or not you. And in that way, you don't you don't become your client's biggest competition. You are the guide to their journey. And so I help I help clients understand the pain points of their customer, their internal you know, what they're trying to get and what they want out of life. And your product is just part of that Mm -hmm. um, solution or part of that journey for them to transform into getting what they want. 
I love that. I think, you know, marketing is everything. I know when I even started Mamas Know Best, I mean, I, I didn't know, I know I had I had things to say, you know, becoming a new mom. And as you know, it's like you're impacted on different levels, obviously, depending on what your experience is and your position and what it is, but it's un- indescribable for each mom of what it feels like, right, on, on whatever that is. And I just felt like there was a community of moms that needed to, I, I just needed to say something, hence my my podcast. And there's some other things I have in place of what I want to do, but it kind of started as like, uh, I want to do this and it's grown. But I think it's so true in what you're saying. And, and like I said before, it's like, if you don't know your story, then how can you, how can you sell it or expect someone to respect that or to understand it or to connect with it, right? Because I think connection is so key, especially in this day and age now. I think um, consumers, we're, we're kind of shifting to where it's no longer the, we're just purchasing to purchase, where people are actually being more conscious about where they're putting their dollars. What is this company doing for the world? You know, look, you and your husband at a young age thought, okay, we want to make a difference. So, you know, you you looked at your family and said, what can we do there? And I think consumers are are looking into that. What are companies doing for the good in the world? What and all of that stuff. So I think that's so important and something that business owners, especially for any moms out there who are looking to start a business to really, really truly think about. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the the term social enterprise is or social entrepreneur is a really um, big buzzword right now. And it's really developing developing industries that actually have a double bottom line. You know, you're not, your goal isn't just to make money, but it's to add more good to the world. Um, Like Tom's shoes or, you know, whatever that we're noonday. I don't know. There's, yeah, there's so, and if you really look, there's actually a lot that, you know, that do give back to the world. And I know, again, me as a consumer, I try and look for that, you know, Yeah, my money where I know it's either going to help another family or whatever it is. Um, So I think that's amazing. Well, I do serve a lot of nonprofits and nonprofit um, leaders come to me to help them tell that story. And and so you are having to figure out what what story are you telling and how can the donors engage in this experience of being shoppers with purpose? or, you know, sponsors, or, you know, whatever it is, but really understanding the social value of what it is they're um, contributing to. Sure, especially it's money, right? Time and money is like of the essence. So, you know, like we said, it's just really important. Why don't you go into, um, I have a little a, a little tidbit here, what movies can teach us about effective marketing campaigns? What have you, well, tell me a little bit about that. What does that mean? Like, So I think it's like understanding how movies work and why we can, you know, sit in a movie theater for an hour and a half to two and a half hours without being distracted on our phones. But, you know, in in regular life, we can't we can't sit still that long for anything else. And so I think it's understanding that story is a place for your brain to rest. And we like being you know, kind of swallowed up by this story because it it gives our brain a chance to absorb, a chance to kind of go on autopilot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really what our brains are looking for are ways to conserve energy. You know, when you go to a website that has 
you know, half of the page is text, <laughs> your brain automatically turns off and says, this is too much. It's true. I think we assume that we have limited resources and our brains, you know, tell you, hey, I, do, I don't have enough for this and that. So we're going to just skip past this website because it's too much. And so understanding that story is that it's a hijacker of your brain, you know, and it can give you a place to rest, especially if, you know, you present your website as a story and helping people's brains rest is is part of your job as an entrepreneur is offering them, here's this solution. All you have to do is click here, click here, answer these three questions, and we're done. The more we lead with, hey, what I do is really complex, the less people understand what it is, or the less they want to have the energy to understand what it is you do. That's so true. Gosh, when you said that, it's like, I don't know. I think I had coined the phrase before I had even heard it where I was like, I would tell my husband if we're, I don't know, watching something like so crazy on TV. And he's like, why are you watching it? And I'm like, because I don't have the mental capacity to watch anything else that's going to make me even remotely think. And I'm a movie person. I love storytelling. I love talking to people. Like I love finding out what people's stories are, what makes them think that way, why they come to those conclusions. I feel like we can learn from every single person that we come in contact with. Movies do that, books do that, but there's sometimes I don't want to think about anything and I just want to watch. And then like I heard, I started hearing, especially with moms, more moms talk and they're like, I don't know them. And I'm like, yes, like we just don't, like our brains can only fit so much. Yeah, it does go on overload. So that's such a good point as when you're thinking of your brand or what that is, it's to help the consumer. And if they have to kind of read sentence after sentence and paragraph to describe who you are, they should be able to figure it out the minute they either look at your brand, whether it's visually or in a, you know, a few words or whatever it is to know that what you represent, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really understanding that customer experience is really key because people don't buy because you have the best product. People buy because it's easy to buy it. Most people buy on emotions, you know, and how does that brand make them feel as well as, you know, does that brand meet one of those needs that's in, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, if it helps you self-actualize or if it helps you belong or if it helps you connect with a certain upper echelon, you know, so that's all of our brain kind of has these basic needs that it's already trying to get. So if you're able to simplify it and help them see how, what are the benefits from your product and how it helps them on their journey and their goals, then you're on the right track. Love it. Um, Why don't we go into a little bit on the if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Enneagram? Enneagram, yeah. Enneagram, yeah. Why don't you go talk a little bit about that um, in creating the buyer persona and leadership? Talk a little bit about that and what that entails. Yeah, so um, are you familiar with the Enneagram at all? It's a um, really neat, I guess in the past 30 years, it's got a re- gotten a resurgence, but it's an ancient tool developed by desert monks in, um, I think the third century of Christianity and, um, monks developed this, there were, they were hermits that lived out in the desert and people would come to them for advice. And 
um, they developed it and it's almost like a personality tool. It's not, it's not necessarily a personality test like Myers-Briggs, but it is a tool to help you understand what your core motivations are and your core patterns for um, moving around and understanding different experiences. So Enneagram means nine, nine words, and that's nine kind of archetypes of people. And there's, there are ways that we function in the world and our strategies for handling um, different situations. And so it shows you where you are and where you need to move toward, you know, so each number on the, um, on the Enneagram has, has kind of like a title or a name, you know, um, the one being the perfectionist or the reformer, the two is the helper, the three is the achiever. So there's all these different personality types and kind of like based, it's not based on the seven deadly sins, but it's very similar to that, where you say, we each have our own passion that we kind of can go to. And here's where that's showing up in your life. And so here's how to um, move away from that and um, find your, your significance or your worth in something else versus what you're trying to find it in. So how do you then pull that in a, I guess, if you could say in a, um, in a, in a macro level of then how does someone use that? I mean, I guess I can kind of see, because if I'm understanding correctly, it's basically saying there's these nine general archetypes, uh, as you were saying, and, and it's true, right? Yeah. Sure. Anyone that you come in contact with can basically fit into one of these categories. Or right. Two. So then you try and develop your brand based on all of them? Or are you saying, okay, I want to go to the people that are more like this number? How does that work? Yeah. I mean, because I work with entrepreneurs or business leaders, most decision makers or business leaders that are at the top of the kind of where they were going to hire me, they tend to be eights and threes. Those are the top number of CEOs and, you know, entrepreneurs. And so that's the challenger. And often called the maverick. And so it's, you know, the, the person that is carving their own way in life. Yeah. And then the three is the achiever. So those two numbers are often heads of companies. So my marketing is really built around speaking directly to those people and using language of success and winning and igniting and movement, you know, my one-liner does include, you know, creating clarity, igniting or sparking interaction and igniting your business. And these are all like really strong, explosive words Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, show winning. And that's what appeals to the eight and the three. You know, if you look at Apple and their Think Different campaign, they are targeting people who like to be different and who like to be outside the box and who like to kind of pave the way. They're the more innovative. Yeah, that's, that's when you think of Apple, you think of that. Like they're the, the techies, the, yeah, it's so crazy how, how they were able. Yes, 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 yes. They're the creative geniuses. And so that's the four and the five on the Enneagram, or, you know, that's, the four is the individualist and the five is the um, investigator. And I think 
that both of those tend to be, they want to find their significance in, in thinking their own thoughts, being an individual and producing something that breaks the mold. And so that's why Apple appeals, you know, and we all have each number inside of us. It's not saying that you're only one of these numbers. You know, you can be a nine and really want that same thing from Apple. Do you know what your number is? Yes, I am a four. I'm an individualist. Uh Yes. So I I have a, yeah, I have a four with a five wing and um, which is very unusual for being an entrepreneur. That's been a challenge. Uh, what's the five? What's the five? The five is the investigator. Oh, okay. So that's uh-huh. someone who who finds their security and their sense of self through um, through information and understanding the world. And I was going to ask. Um, obviously, we are. Gosh, I was going to say we're in 2020, and that's such a whew, loaded. <laughs> I think for years to come of what 2020. I, I sometimes I'm like, gosh, 2020 was a year of all years. Like when you really think about it, like I'll be like, wait, when did that happen? I'm like, gosh, that was that was like that's 2020 because it was just so much. Yeah. You continue, and, and and I probably know the answer, but how do you keep abreast of like, oh, because I feel like this kind of branding and marketing is always constantly changing. Yeah. But you look like someone that enjoys kind of learning, hence, you know, um, the investigative, you know, all that. So what do you do to constantly just keep abreast? Are you reading books? Are you seeking other, like, how does that work for you? I love um, subscribing to those online classes, and you awesome. know, masterclass and things like that. And typically go often visit other um, people's websites that are doing what I'm doing and seeing, are they doing something innovative? You know, are they, have they packaged it in such a way that helps their, you know, clients experience an easier buying journey? And then there's some great publications like um, Content Marketing Institute and lots of different um, thought leaders that if, if you get on LinkedIn, there's just hundreds of people telling you how to do it. <laughs> That's the beauty of the internet. You know, it's crazy because I've always thought of myself and, and I'm very interested. I want to kind of look into this because like I said, I love looking at all that stuff and personality types. I guess I pride myself. Maybe I'm thinking, I guess I'm an individualist. Like I'm like, no, I don't like to do if everyone's going left or right. I like to go left and all that. But I was listening to a podcast the other day and I think it's important for entrepreneurs to know. And I like how you said that that you go onto other people's Instagrams or websites or whatever it is to gain inspiration. And I was so against that um, probably even maybe a year ago. I think things have just been clicking where I'm like, wait a minute, you can gain inspiration from someone who's doing what you're doing and you're not going to copy them. Cause that was, I think always stuck in my mind. Like, well, I don't want to do or make it seem like, and it's like, but they are who they are and I am who I am. So mm-hmm. even if I gain inspiration, it's still my own twist because it's, it's me. That's right. That's right. And, you know, part of that business building is kind of coming up with your own signature way of doing things. So, you know, no one starts from zero. We all come with an idea of how other people are doing it or how it's already been done before. And we, we develop that. So I, you know, I believe that creativity is taking two things that have never been connected before and connecting them. So, you know, you can go to one Instagram account and seeing how somebody's doing something and then another, and then you take those two things and put them together in a new way that's never been done before. 
that's not copying, you know, that's, that's creativity. And that's, you know, using what we've got. So I can't remember what the phrase is, but it's something like, um, oh gosh, I can't remember. It's about copying and like true artists, you know, just steal. Like they take from, they do correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we, we do steal ideas from each other all the time sure. and understanding, you know, it's a global marketplace now and it's, it's not about, I don't believe the market is about competing. I believe it's about collaborating and really saying, you know, here's what I do. Here's what you do. Let's come together and support each other. Even if we're doing the exact same thing, a rising tide rises all boats, you know, and I, sure. and that's how I live. I, and I think, well, I think we're getting there. I think, in the, I think, again, I'd say between the 20, 25 year mark of, I don't know what it is, but from me being young, I remember and just seeing how things have shifted, but I believe a lot of that is due to internet and social media as, as negative as social media can be, if you let it get there and it's very overwhelming, there's so much good. And I think it goes to your fact where you can collaborate. And I, I think when you were saying about the artists before, I think it's more evolving, right? So I think the biggest thing of that is seeing, um, musical artists. So like Beyonce, she gained inspiration from Tina Turner, who gained inspiration from maybe, I don't know, Diana Ross or whatever that evolve yeah. was. Um, and I think it's the same thing. That's why I was so, I'm so happy you said that because I was one of those, like, I'm not going to copy and I'm just going to be in my head. And I'm like, wait a minute, I need inspiration. I need to gain inspiration somewhere. And you can pick and choose, oh, I like this from this. And then you put your own spin on it. That is the beauty. Yeah. And, you know, there's templated stuff out there. You know, people have, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, you can go and get the wheel from somebody else and then add a chassis. You know, I mean, it's, you know, bringing up the music thing. If you notice so many songs that are released today have featuring so-and-so, you know, and so it's, it's no longer like Beyonce is competing for the same listeners as, you know, Nicki Minaj, they're, you know, they're coming together and doing songs together. That's what about the terrible, music from that's the a terrible example? Cause I don't think that they have worked together, but <laughs> no, they have, I think they have. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's why I was like, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Nicki Minaj is featured <laughs> and technically they're competitive because Nicki's a thing, but still it's actually even more point because we can go into how women are pitted against each other and they can't do anything. So that's a whole nother thing, but that's a right. good example. But what about even artists sampling other songs? That's huge, huge nowadays yeah. of, of seeing that. And actually, before I forget, I want to ask, what has oh, 2020, the last seven months with COVID and with the world kind of stopping, I'm assuming, and you know, maybe I'm incorrect, that it's actually helped a business like yours because now people are looking like, look, we need to market. How can we do this online? Like people are figuring out like, help me. How can now, either how do I pivot from maybe they had a traditional, yeah, uh, they would go to trade shows or like the traditional, that kind of marketing, you know, where it was like person to person. And now they're like, oh, wait, we got yeah. kind of, to survive. We have to figure out other avenues. So how has that been for you? Um, well, initially it was terrible and I lost all my retainer clients Oh God! Um, because sometimes in, in crisis, sometimes marketing is the first out, you know, first to go. And, um, you know, I was helping, I was, a um, the marketing consultant on, you know, retainer for a couple of, um, one restaurant, one school and, um, another nonprofit. So when COVID hit, 
those immediately lost money. So I lost those, but um, yeah, it's been, it's been slow. You you Yeah, it's been slow. And whereas before I would get, you know, requests for proposals quite often now it's very few. Really? Gosh, that's so interesting. Cause I feel like more, I mean, you have a good point. Yes. I mean, companies are looking at ways to kind of scale back for sure. But and I, I also learning. and maybe there will be a pickup of that. They're being like, look, we have to, in order to build up clients, we're going to have to market and do something else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's starting to come back. I think a lot of business owners are figuring out how to do it themselves, you know, and so they're bringing it in-house. But that's what, you know, I do think being a consultant, you know, hiring outside is really important because, you know, you are inside this box and you've got all these ideas of what it is you can do and want to do and want to offer, but really you need help looking from the outside saying, how do we simplify this? How do we make this easy for um, your customer to find you and to, um, to make a purchase? So hundred percent. And how has it been, because this is a mom podcast, how's it been with your kids? Cause you have a 16 year old. So they're still in high school. Your 20 year old, I'm assuming. Yeah. 20 year old is um, away at college though. Most all of her classes have been online. So that's been kind of a struggle. And then my 16 year old has been in high school. So where we live, they started late because they started, they, well, in person late, they did online for a few weeks and then they started meeting in person and then now they do kind of both but yeah and the black lives matter um, movement has been has really affected my family and we've really been more engaged with civic with civic action during covid and really being part of protests and really speak on it. tell me I mean, you know it's funny i was going to ask but i was like you know i I feel like always, like I said, when I have conversations with moms, they can go so many ways because people always have stories to tell. And I'm so I'm intrigued by them. And I was going to ask about it. And I was like, you know what, let's, you know, I let's go. But yeah, how, tell me about that. What what have you been doing? That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, really. And what inspired it? What, I guess, sorry to cut you off. What really inspired that? Was there, you guys just had a breaking point where your kids like, mom, dad, we got to do something. What was that? So about two years ago, we had a situation in our um, school system where um, the teachers were trying to, they were going through this diversity training. And part of that training was learning about white privilege. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, several of the teachers and parents began to really protest because they believed that was negative and was racist against white people. And so when that when that whole diversity training thing fell through, and then there was a couple of other like incidents in national news, um, a group of my friends, and one of them included um, an African American history teacher, we just began realizing, you know, our, our community just doesn't understand. And there's really a lack of education in how we've, how we ended up here. And so we've been kind of meeting and we started this nonprofit group called the public, where we meet in these public forums and just talk about race issues. 
And so we've been doing that for about a year and a half. And the chills, that's beautiful. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And so, you know, initially my kids were kind of skittish about it because, you know, a bunch of, you know, white people talking about race and, and it was their experience, you know, their personal experience. And so they, you know, had a lot to say about, you know, my perspective and, um, and, so we really started a, a dialogue at home mm-hmm. that really added to that experience um, and that dialogue. And as we've grown as an organization in the community, it's, you know, we have diversified voices speaking and, um, but yeah, our kids have been, you know, increasingly civic aware. And I think because of social media, the kids kids are so much more aware of politics and news and what's happening in the world so much more than we ever were. And we could talk about the fact that that is such an anxiety creator another time, but the, (laughs) absolutely. But you know, one of the things is my, my children are so much more um, globally minded and um, politically minded. And so we talk about equality and civil rights and, equity and, and the difference between how Americans experience life. And so we've just supported our kids in, you know, in saying, hey, black lives do matter. And it's not and we're not saying that white lives don't. Um, everybody can agree that all lives matter. But the point being that they're not treated the same. And, and therefore, never yeah. Yeah. And so uh, someone gave me a great, um, a great way to explain it. it was like, if you were feeling like your spouse was not treating you well, and you say, you know, do I matter to you? Do you love me? And, you know, your spouse says, well, I love everybody in our family. You know, you would sock them, you know, you would just be like, no, thank you. You know, Obviously, you love everybody, but that's not what we're referring to. That's you. not where that's not where we're going here. So that's really the heart behind that movement. And my children are really um, taking an opportunity to be heard to say, you know, I, my experience is different than the white experience. And, me, and I was going to ask, because I see you guys, have you always lived in Tennessee with them? Is that where your children were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have they felt any, I mean, they are biracial, so I don't know if they look, you know, because that comes, my my son is biracial. I'm Puerto Rican and Italian. My husband's Jamaican and Guyanese. Um, But when you look at him, you kind of don't know what, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, have they had their experiences? Have you guys felt any kind of thing of being, you know, tell me a little bit about that. I would say for the most part, we haven't experienced anything dramatic, but there's this term um, called microaggressions. And my kids have definitely experienced these microaggressions where they're called out for talking more in class, or um, they, you know, aren't, aren't given that hall pass where somebody else would be given it. Um, You know, just, just, those little things that you think aren't a big deal and you want to minimize, I mean, as a white person, you know, you often want to minimize it and say, oh, that person didn't mean that, or there was nothing racist about that situation. But when 
somebody is experiencing these same microaggressions day in, day out, there can't be any other interpretation of it. And so I think learning to trust my kids' experience, we've had some issues um, with, you know, the court system or, you know, the school system where I, you know, you do wonder, you know, and um, my kids don't wonder, they know, you know, what their experience is. And so, yeah, it's, it's mainly been microaggressions, but you know, when, when we've protested, you know, my, my son was holding a sign that said black lives matter. And he had a man walk up to him, an adult man walk up to him and scream in his face, uh, white lives matter more. And we've, we've marched downtown in our, um, in our small town and they've, people have screamed um, obscenities, you know, made, you know, made racial slurs and screamed the N word at my kids. And um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's very real. It's very real. Yeah. That's been very clear. And I think that's helped other white people in our neighborhood in our town go, Oh, okay. So that does exist. You know, there, it, there are people who, who come out and are flat out racist and they're not trying to hide it. Which I think it goes, it's, and I love what you guys are doing because I think it's so important because I think at the height of everything in life, what we're doing, it's education. It's educating one another in our experiences. And I always tell people, um, I live in South Florida And it's so easy, yes, for a white person who doesn't know an immigrant's experience or anything, or even a white male, or even a man to a woman, anything. I've always kind of prefaced things by saying, you can't speak on anyone's experience. You are not Black, so you don't know. You are not a female, if I'm talking to a male, so you don't know my experiences. You don't know if I am in a meeting and I said something or my thing is diminished, but when another man says it, or if I am, I hold an executive position and I, I've held other executive positions that if I may be a little more aggressive than the male, but it's okay when a male comes in and he can be, excuse my word, a jerk or an asshole. And it's like, no one really gossips. It's like, oh, that's him. But the minute a woman shows any kind of, yeah, aggression or some power, it's like, oh, she's this and the other women are gossiping. So I always kind of say, you don't know people's experience until you lived it. You don't know the, you don't know. Um, I think what you're doing is so important because it really goes down to conversation and educating people. And when I have um, broken things down for people in that way, specifically white people, um, or I was talking to a, a white Jewish woman and she was like, well, I, you know, I've had my own race, you know, of people, um, discriminating against me and saying things I'm like yes but people don't just look at you and know that you're Jewish if you because she was like well I don't experience it anymore and I'm like now if you walked around and you were the orthodox Jews I'm like have you spoken to one of them maybe they have experienced because when you see them it's blatant that you can see what they represent I'm like when you're a person of color people can see that they're a person of color so they experience more I said you look like a white woman if you walked around with a star of David maybe you would I'm like it's all about what and she was like, yeah. oh gosh, I didn't think about that. And she was like, maybe, yeah, you're right. Maybe I would. I'm like, exactly. But to another yeah. person or someone who might be racist or a white supremacist, they're like, oh, she's just another white woman. But if you walked around looking like an Orthodox Jew or you had a star of David or whatever it is, you don't know what that experience might be. Um, right. So gosh, I love what you're doing because yes, it comes down to communication and through education. And it's so unfortunate that in 2020, we still have those microaggressions. Um, a girlfriend of mine, she's black and her daughter 
gosh, I think she's nine or 10. And even as a little girl, she would tell her mom, mom, my teacher only um, calls on the white boy, white girls first. And then the white, I think she said the order was like white girls, white boys, or white boys, white girls. um, And then the black boys. And then she's like, and I'm last. And how she noticed that as a little girl. And I was like, what? Um, And Janelle was my, my friend was like, I don't know, do I say something to the teacher? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm like, how do you? How do you even talk to your teacher about that? Because what if they don't even realize that they or yeah. recognize that they're doing it? Which is why, yeah, our our school systems need that <laughs> diversity training because they, have, you know, and why cops need it. You know, it's like there is this implicit bias that we don't we're not even aware that we do. Yeah, you know? but and it's we, not and it's not taking away from white people. It's just trying to understand, like you said, it's understanding that you do have we all we all have it within ourselves of the implicit bias of the minute of the things that we're doing that we don't realize. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, microaggressions are really just a symptom of the, that deeper systemic racism that is just built into our country's framework. You know, we can't get around the fact that of how we started as a country and the systems aren't broken. They're actually working just like they were intending to be, you know, at, to benefit certain people and not benefit others, you know? So, you know, we have to, we have to start listening and um, changing the way things are. And I think being a parent of kids that are cross, you know, cross racially parenting, parenting cross racially is a, just a task of really understanding your kids and your your kids experience and perspective and it's just going to be different than yours yeah no that's all but like I said what you guys are doing I think that's awesome um I I wish it was more happening around and, uh, you know I think it is because I I think after this year like I said there's so much with 2020 I had never in my life seen so many people especially white people especially white women coming out and speaking on injustice um yeah on Instagram and social media companies coming out and speaking on it on levels of not just like, yeah, we believe in equal opportunity. No, like denouncing and coming together. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been so beautiful to see. So yeah. Beautiful. And I think, you know, it speaks to how really right now it's not enough to just not be a racist. You have to be anti-racist. Um, and I think white women coming finally coming forward, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, let people of color speak. But, you know, people of color are tired. <laughs> you know, they've been speaking for years and you haven't listened to them. So, you know, maybe having a white woman stand up and saying, we're not okay with this anymore. And, you know, a justice in one place is injustice everywhere. That's something that all races need to take seriously. And yeah, I think that that's our job to, to stand up against racist um, policies. And I think it's just trying to control what we can within our bubble. Um, I think I got overwhelmed to over, you know, the George Floyd, the Ahmaud Aubrey and certain things. Yeah. And then I was like getting so anxiety, like, what can I do? What can I do? And then it had to hit me. And I was like, look, I can only do what I can do within my circle, being kind to people, having conversations where if I am hearing of someone, like you said, of not just being uh, not racist, but anti-racist. And if I hear certain jokes or trying to educate people that may just not know, because before I used to come from a place of anger, like, yeah. no, why would you say that? Now I'm like, some people just really don't know. They don't know. Yeah, it's true. Um, and even if you look back at the curriculum, the school curriculum in the South was actually written by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And so 
they took the narrative of civil war out of any of the textbooks in the South. And, you know, the, the language that was used was, they called it the war of Northern aggression or the war against the States. And they whitewashed, you know, the, our textbooks. So, you know, you can't blame somebody who grew up hearing, you know, that the civil war wasn't because of slavery. (laughs) (laughs) They heard that somewhere, you know, and that was taught by their teachers. So of course they don't believe that it was about slavery. And they Um, don't know better. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's really important that we need to to teach and just be helping and finding power in a group of people that are doing one thing, you know? And so, yeah, we can't, we can't all like change the world and, you know, start movements or, you know, whatever, but we can join other people and um, choose a very collective idea of what our call to action is going to be as a group and, and just do it together. And so that's, that's certainly what, what we're trying to do here. Like after George Floyd, our group went from, we had about anywhere from 30 to a hundred people that would come to our, our public discussions. And then after George Floyd, we had 700 people show up and that was during COVID. We met at a school like property. And so everybody just brought their folding chairs and it was really quite something to have so many people there saying, Hey, we, we don't know what the problem is, but there's something going on and we want to learn about it. And we want to know what we can do to change. And it's been really, it's been really amazing to watch some of the conversations that are happening and not just conversations, but conversations that lead to change. So hopefully we will make some progress. I think so. I do. I mean, I used to have a very, very long way, but I do. I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful for my son. Very still scared, still very scary because there are, I mean, you do see still part of the country when you hear certain comments and certain things and I'm like, Jesus, wow. But I'm still also very hopeful um, when I do see kind of people meeting people like yourself. Like I said, I knew you were coming in to talk about entrepreneurship and look what you're doing in Tennessee, how many thousands of miles away. Like, it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so Sarah, why don't we get into some fun stuff? And then of course you can go into um, anything else that you want to talk about as far as your, um, your business and how you can help um, business owners, which by the way, I will be contacting you because, oh, um, I, you know, the, yes. So we will be, <laughs> we'll be reaching out for you to, for you to help me, but why don't we go into some fun stuff? Tell me about your favorite movie. Or a movie you never get tired of watching. So, you know, I was actually um, thinking about this, that this morning, because I knew you were going to ask it, but um, (laughs) I, I kind of rotate between like my top five movies. So um, I would say, you know, mainly, normally I answer with two, like it's either Goonies or Moulin Rouge. Those, those are two movies that I love. I will watch all the time. Love Actually, I love that movie that um, I watch that every Christmas and um, some kind of wonderful. I love um, so John Hughes, any John Hughes movie. So I have I have some favorites. Yeah, 
Awesome. Love it. See, I knew you can come up with something because I feel like especially when I when I phrase it like one that you never get tired of watching, because I know a lot of moms, like most of the moms that interview, like I don't even remember the last time I watched an adult movie because <laughs> it's made up. Yeah, but, it's coming. It's coming. You have you have a couple more years. It's coming. Yes. Well, no, we still, oh gosh, especially because COVID, my son was home. So Disney Plus, we had to find ways. Now he's into superheroes. So yes. um, how old is your son? He's three. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He's in the superhero like spectrum. He has, my husband has found so many costumes at TJ Maxx, Black Panther, Captain America, Spider-Man and Superman. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's like our thing right now. But yeah. So when I get time, so I get it, but I'm like, there's always one that, you know, if it's on, you stop and you watch it. Yeah. Goonies is like classic. You know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever seen Moulin Rouge from beginning to end. Um, and I hear it's a great movie, but I know Goonies. I mean, that's yeah, Goonies is the best. Yeah, it really is. Such a great, great um, family, you know, fun, just movie. Yeah. Okay, what about a favorite or most inspirational book that you've read or one that you would like to recommend? Well, Building a Story Brand is Don, Donald Miller's book about um, using the storytelling framework to tell your, you know, your brand story. Um, that's the framework I, I've used I've kind of developed my own because of how how much I've you know been how long I've been doing this but I would say that that book is a real a foundational book in understanding how to market your business so yeah it really simplifies the whole process awesome what about okay what has motherhood taught you oh my goodness motherhood has taught me that life is about learning how to respond to circumstances in a way that move you forward and not backwards. So like it, it's, it's taught me that, you know, life is just one set of challenges after another. And so it's, it's never about getting to the next stage, yeah. but living the stage you're in well and doing, doing what works for you and, and not listening to that inner critic or the critics around you, but doing what works for you. Well, as what, what my podcast is called, Mamas Know Best. That's why I made it plural. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, not one mother has it all. I mean, you know, what's best for your family for sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I made it plural. Cause I think all moms just know what's best for, for your own family. And I think we do get kind of caught up in the comparisons and things. And yeah. it's simple as just, you know, you know what you need to do. For yeah. Your kids are who they are. Yeah. What else can be a mom for your kids, but you. Yeah. And your kids, everybody's kids need something different. You know, I, I used to have a um, chalkboard in my kitchen and I had written up there for a very long time when my kids were younger, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And, you know, I just kept saying, okay, what's good from this goose? Cause this, you know, it's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Motherhood is hard. And so I think really knowing what it is you need and, and, you know, meeting that first is, is good for your kids. hundred percent. What piece of advice or wisdom do you hope that your children will follow and take with them for the rest of, you know, for the rest of their life? And of course, it can't just be one thing, but something that you really hold true and dear of being like, yeah, I hope, you know, if anything that they can really take this with them. Well, I mean, beyond knowing that they are loved and and walking in that, um, knowing that that God is on their side, that that their family's on their side, beyond that. I would say um, 
you know, be the change you want to see in the world. I think that's, if you're going to, if you're going to protest the way things are, you need to be part of the change. So. And I think that's a good point to even talk about motherhood. I was thinking about the, the other day and it's like, you know, we, we are trying to teach our children, right. To be, um, good human beings, to be kind, to be resilient. But if we don't emulate those things ourselves, it does not matter. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think that goes true to your point, be the change you wish to see. And that's also to all the moms out there, no matter how much you try and say, pick up this or do this. If you're not doing that, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're seeing, you know, you or your partner emulating the complete opposite of what you're trying to instill in them, it's not going to really, it's, it's not going to make a difference. You have to also be that change for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, any other final thoughts to the podcast world, to my followers, any last minute things you want to put out there, how they, well, I'll put, when I post this, I'll put how they can get in touch with you, but any, any other things you would like to say? Yeah. I mean, I would love to offer your listeners, um, a free website audit that, um, you know, I, I take you through understanding what your website, you know, the message that your website is, is sending out there and is it clear and does it connect in a way that really helps people um, on their on their journey, um, awesome. their story that they're living? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yes. Well, once we'll talk about that of when I post it and how they can get in contact with you. But that's okay, on me. Yeah. All right. Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your truth, for sharing your motherhood journey. Um, you know, for the work that you're doing, uh, the social injustice that's happening in the world and you trying to put, you know, your, your positive spin on it. That's, that's amazing. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the mama's no best. We got something to say podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and give a review on the platform you're listening on. Tune in next time to hear another fierce mama share her story. Continued blessings to you all for love and light.